Okay, so we are continuing to walk through this semester of applied theology. These were originally two lessons, and then COVID happened. I got COVID, and then Jeff got COVID, so we had to cancel theological equipping two weeks ago. So we pushed these together, but perhaps it's providential because these would be two things that seem opposed to one another, resting in the fact that God is God and you are not, and taking a break and going to bed, resting, right, doing less, and then something that is so, so much devotion to God where you would even lay aside food. Those seem like perhaps contradictory, so maybe in putting them together, we'll see how they beautifully go together. We'll see the mystery of the gospel here revealed a little bit. So uh, like most of our lessons, real simple, we're just going to look at rest. What is rest biblically? Uh, how are we meant to rest? How are we wired to rest in a fallen world yet redeemed as we look forward to ultimate rest? And then practical how-tos. Again, not exhaustive, just kind of ideas that I'm going to throw out there that you can either latch on to or think of others. And then fasting. What is fasting? Super misunderstood in our day. What is it? What is kind of the, the biblical idea of fasting? Give you a whole bunch of fasts. So that's what we have for us today. Let's look first at rest. When you open your Bible to page one, and you see in the beginning there's nothing except God, and God creates, speaks everything, the universe into being, separates light from darkness, separates the waters from the skies, fills the water with fish, fills the sky with birds, fills the land with animals, and then makes us, makes man and woman in his image. We see the six days of creation. It's the first thing that we see, and kind of as a summary statement, in the last verse of chapter 1, we see this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then you turn to the next chapter, chapter 6, the first three verses, you see, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts in them. Everything's done, everything's been made. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day, so you see all this creation and then seventh day God rests. Not because he's tired, right? God doesn't get tired. He's infinitely energetic, if you will. Not because he's tired, but rather to show us a couple things. One, that simply just the work is finished. It's done. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to Create. It's all been created, so God rests from his work. And then secondly, more importantly for you and I, those created on the sixth day, those created in his image to reign and rule in his place, for us to see that he, the creator of all the universe, the creator of everything, has woven into that creation rest. More importantly for you and I to recognize he's the creator, we are creature. And therefore we're meant to live in light of this rests, or to say it another way, you and I are continually from creation meant to live in light of the reality that he is God and we are not. He's the one who creates, we are the ones who are created. Uh, last summer, for whatever reason, I don't know why, we were, we were having lunch and a bird was trying to get into our house. It was pecking on one of the windows, flying in, and it was me, Claudia, and Harvey, and uh, Harvey was just dying laughing, this bird trying to get in, crying, laughing, looking at us, and we're playing it up, whoa. And then it finally flew off, and Harvey looked at us and goes, again? And we're like, oh, buddy, sorry, we're not controlling that. We have no hand over that bird, 
right? This kind of continual reminder, (laughs) I can't make that happen again. There's only one who can make that again. We're constantly meant to live in this reality that he's God, we're not. And from this, this is a good thing. This is a good reality for you and I to live in. Uh, One of my professors had this quote as he was teaching through Genesis 1 and 2 where he would say, we rest because he reigns. We rest because he reigns. That's what we're meant to live like as those made in his image, woven into creation, this idea of rest. And so even pre-fall, Genesis 1 and 2, you see Adam and Eve are put in the garden to work it, to keep it, to do work, right? So rest doesn't mean no work, but rather rest is, uh, or work is restful. We have this literal physical work, Adam in their gardening, Right? Whatever, you, whatever you do in the Garden of Eden, gardening, work the garden and keep it, but from this place of rest. There's no thorns yet. There's no sweat. Right? There's no toil yet because there hasn't been a fall. And then there's spiritual rest. There's peace with God. They're walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. The Lord is dwelling with them in the garden. So you have physical rest, rest for your soul, spiritual rest. There's peace with God. And then the next chapter we see, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve forget or perhaps more accurately, rebel against the fact that we rest because he reigns. And you know what they say? I want to reign. I want immediately you see this fracturing of our rest. Relational rest is gone. Adam and Eve are no longer on the same page, hanging out, you know, working perfectly together. They're, they're, what are they doing? That woman you gave me, you know, is the one who made me sin. You see this fracturing of relational rest. You see a fracturing of physical rest now Adam, work will, will come as a result of sweat. Thorns and thistles will come out of the garden rather than beautiful flourishing. So physical rest is broken. And then ultimately, the rest for your soul, spiritual rest is broken. They're kicked out of the garden. They can no longer dwell and walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, trying to be God means you can never rest. You can't make the bird fly back to the window, even if you want to. Adam and Eve deluding themselves, thinking, I can decide for myself what is good and what is evil, stepping in God's place. That can never actually happen. And so when you reign, when he doesn't reign, you can never, ever, ever rest. That's getting to the very heart of sin. Trying to be God means you can never actually rest. And so when you and I try to be like Adam where he doesn't reign, we reign in his place. That means we can never rest. Why is rest a spiritual discipline? Fasting makes sense. Prayer makes sense. Scripture memory makes sense. Why is this a spiritual discipline? Because we are hardwired. One of the things sin is perhaps most foundationally trying to make us do is trying to make us be God, trying to put ourselves back on the throne rather than resting in the fact that he is on the throne. So you will have to practice this. Sin will make you not rest, not to mention your society, not to mention all the other pressures around you telling you to work more and all these different things. You will have to practice this. This is a spiritual discipline. And after Genesis 3, things do not go well. Everybody is their own God. Nobody rests. The best of the best characters fail miserably, whether it's Moses or David, the man after God's own heart. Nobody allows God to reign, and so nobody rests. And we see things like this, his voice Uh, I guess it's not God talking. The psalmist talking about God. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, 
They are a people that go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath. What's the punishment for rebellion against God? What's the punishment for having hard hearts? Verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he specifically, yes, talking about the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but scan the rest of the scriptures. What is the key descriptor of man's heart? Heart of stone. No one does good, no, not one. And the punishment for not looking to him, not trusting in him, not allowing him to be God is we cannot enter his rest. That's the hopeless state that we are in as a result of our sin until we get to his people. Matthew, when God himself comes down, Jesus Christ, and he says things like this to his people. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Jesus knows the toil, the constant restlessness that we are in as a result of our sin. And he promises those who come to me, what will you find when you come to me? You will find rest, redeemed people, those who have been brought in, those who are in Christ, as the scriptures would tell us, are meant to be a people of rest in a restless age, meant to be a people who have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Yes, we still live in a broken world. Yes, work is still difficult. We're looking forward to future perfect rest. We'll talk about that here in a second. But now in this kind of already not yet age, as we look to our gentle and lowly Savior, he promises rest. Hebrews 4, uh, I think I have it there in your notes. We don't have time to read it. But the, the 3 and 4 is this beautiful description of Israel who, again, looked to their own works. They didn't look to God, and therefore they couldn't enter his rest. And just simply the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is saying, so now don't look at your own works. Look to him. Trust him. Look to Jesus and hear the promise, you can enter my rest. What Israel couldn't in- enter because of their unbelief, because of their hardness of heart, you can because of what Jesus has done. Look to him, trust in him, don't look to yourself. We can enter his rest, and we now look forward to rest in eternity. One of the things we see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, we see uh, God's people and the people who rebel against God, reject God, and one of the main punishments that uh, God promises them is they will have no rest for all of eternity, day or night, they will have no rest, but God's people will have rest. And what do we see at the end of the story, if you will? Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man, just like in the garden, just like Genesis 1 and 2. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. They will see me. I will dwell. They will be my people. I will be their God. What do we see? Rest, eternal rest. Finally, rest for our Physical bodies, no more sweat, no more thorns coming out and beautiful eternity in the new heavens and the new earth and ultimate rest for our souls. Something we have now by faith, but one day it will be by sight. One day it will be by sight. Rest for your soul and for your body. That's the picture. That's kind of a short biblical theology of rest. So now let's zoom in a little bit. Again, we see these two types of rest throughout the scriptures. Rest for your physical body. And then rest for your soul, peace with God. So let's look at that first one first, rest for our bodies. So I love church history. We just finished going through a year of church history. When we were planning that, I was like, let's do three years. 
You know, that's, that'd be better than a year, and I was outvoted. And some of you were like, thank the Lord for a plurality of people in those meetings. I love history. I love uh, church history figures. I love reading guys like Athanasius and Charles Spurgeon and all these guys that are kind of like my dead mentors. Uh, one of the things, there's two things that most people in church history, most of my heroes are really, really bad at. First thing is that a lot of them are really bad husbands and dads. A.W. Tozer, horrible dad, super godly, neglected his family like crazy. Almost none of his kids are Christians because they view their dad as a hypocrite. John Wesley, really, really bad husband. A lot of those guys, bad husbands, bad dads, that's not really what we're talking about. The second thing is they almost never rested, and they died at 40 as a result. They almost never rested, almost never went to bed, way overworked, Charles Spurgeon has this long quote, to be worn out in the master's service is good. I'll have less of this earth and more of heaven. That's not what we say, okay? So even if their view or their reasons for it were a bit virtuous, that's not what we say, okay? We live, again, in one of the most restless ages, arguably in all of history, all of history. So we are, as a culture, addicted to coffee, to energy drinks, to cocaine, our kids uh, are addicted to Adderall, even if they don't have ADD, I guess they're not addicted. They think they need it to focus and study and beat the competition, right, just to get into college. I personally almost always have breakfast in my car on the way to work to maximize time. I have lunch with a lot of you, right, to maximize. I have to eat lunch, and I want to shepherd and meet with you guys, so I'm maximizing time. I passed someone on the road two days ago putting makeup on in their car, swerving all over the place, right? We don't have time to put our makeup on at home. Are you kidding me? Have you not seen our day? Super fast, right? You text, you don't get a response instantly. Are they mad at me? What's happening? We're just expecting. Quick, 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 quick. Your day is not one that says rest. And if you aren't that crazy fast as the rest of our society is, what are you viewed as? Lazy. You're not working hard enough. If you're not working a 50-plus hour week, you're not really, you know, a man. Right? If your kids aren't in a billion different things, you're a neglectful parent, right? It's not just, oh, you've chosen a less insane lifestyle. It's, no, you're lazy. That's, that's an evil thing not to go that fast. Your age is sinfully restless, and a lot of us drink it in without realizing it. We don't have the, yeah, I'm busy, but it's because I'm just so devoted to the Lord's service. <laughs> we don't sound like Spurgeon. We sound like, you know, whoever on Wall Street just to, you know, keep going and make the next buck or whatever the case may be so our kids can compete to get into a good college. That is the age that we live in. And what that reveals about our hearts is we think we're God. We're right back to Genesis 3. He's not in control of everything. I'm in control of everything. I need to make sure all of this happens. Or we're trying to earn something that's already been given to us. We're trying to earn something that's already been given to us by God. So there is a lot to fight against. I say all that to say there is a lot to fight against when it comes to rest. So dialing down just practically, what are, what are some things we can do to actually practice biblical rest, trusting God to be God, actually having a healthy lifestyle where you're not just from the second your alarm goes off to the second you crash into bed slammed with unhelpful busyness. What does it actually look like? I have I think three or four things. Again, these are just, just like with prayer, these are just general suggestions. These aren't law. I mean, everybody's in different seasons of life. I recognize that. 
And so, you know, rest for you might look different with young kids than when they're out of the house and you're an empty nester. And, you know, rest for you might look different when you're actually retired versus, you know, starting up a business or something like that. So don't take these as law. These are just meant to be helpful. So first, rest your physical body. That's like as practical as we can get. Go to bed. I don't mean don't run all the marathons you're running. I mean sleep. Get more sleep than you're getting. That includes your mind when I say uh, physical bodies. Find out how much sleep you need, how much the CDC recommends, right? And then just get that much, okay? I'm pretty, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty dialed in uh, to how much sleep I need because, you know, in seminary, as you're writing papers and as you're like, I'll just learn all the stuff about God real quick and then I'll go pastor a church. Uh, sometimes I would get like five hours of sleep, which you hear about all the time. That's normal. Uh, and then, so I'd imagine when people are, don't get enough sleep, they like are dozing all the time. I thought that was the result. That is not what happened to me. What happens to me is I just sort of, my brain just stops working. So I was like driving and I just ran a red light. And I was like, I think I, was I supposed to stop? And I was like, whoa, this is way freakier than like slowly dozing. Then you can pull over. My brain just shuts off. So I, I've got it pretty dialed in, but that's taken a lot of work. And if I don't get that amount, if I stay up late to write a sermon or whatever, I'll be slurring my speech up here. Right? It will not go well. So figure out how much sleep you need and then get that much sleep. Very simple. And again, remember, you, you're resting. Why are you doing this? Because you're not God. You rest because you're not God, which is why when you go to bed every night, when you lay your head on the pillow and you're done with pillow talk or whatever you do, pray. Let the last words out of your mouth every single night be, God, I thank you that I sleep because you don't. I'm not in control of the universe. I'm not even in control of my own life. You are. And so let your sleep every night be worship. You're God. I'm not. Remind yourself every single night of your absolute need for rest and let your heart rejoice. That's a good thing. Rest because he reigns and you don't. Remind yourself of that every single night. Stop working when you get home. Stop working when the kids go to bed. Find restful things for you to do with your spouse, whether that's whatever. Get spouse hobbies, whether it's drinking wine on the back porch or playing cards or watching a show, whatever. Find things that are restful. Stop working. Put your phone in the other room if you need to. Stop working and actually Rest, that's number one, rest your bodies. Number two, rest on weekends. Our crazy society has wired into it, into the weekly schedule, days for rest. So take advantage of that. If it's possible, make sure your weekends aren't just overloaded with extra things. Make sure they're not busier than the week that you're already in. Get all the stuff that you normally do on the weekends done if you can. Mow the lawn during the week, stay up late to mow the lawn so that you can have a whole Saturday actually resting. Get bills done, chores done, whatever you need to do. Figure out what you actually enjoy. This is so important. We're, so many of us are just so not self-aware. I'm sure there's a better word for that. But I didn't get much sleep last night, and so I can't think of it now. And so I'm a standing application for you, okay? I need to rest more. I'm not doing this perfectly. So find out what you need. Is it seeing friends? Is that what fills you with rest? Is it nature? Is it long walks, right? We've got all these parks around us. Go walk around one and breathe in the air and listen to the birds and things like that. If it's nobody, introvert, find ways to wire that into your weekend, okay? Charles Spurgeon, who, again, I, I probably shouldn't have quoted here because I 
just use him as a bad example of someone who died at 50 because he didn't rest. But he says this. Uh, he says, to sit long in one posture, poring over a book or driving a quill, that's a pen in the ancient days, is in itself a taxing of nature. And add to this a badly ventilated chamber, a body which has long been without muscular exercise and a heart burdened with many cares. And we have all the elements prepared. Uh, for preparing a seething cauldron of despair. Certainly in the dim months of fog, that's England. We would say certainly in the cold, but then it's 80 the next day or whatever makes us anxious because we have no consistent weather here in Texas. But, so, all that, you don't do anything, sit still, of course, it's going to go really bad for you. Here's what he says. Nature outside his window is calling him to health, beckoning him to joy. He who forgets the humming of the bees along the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the songs of the birds in the woods, the rippling of the rills among the rushes, and the sigh of the wind among the pines, needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows heavy. Or this shorter quote that I actually like more. A mouthful of sea air or stiff walk in the wind's face will not give grace to the soul, but it will give oxygen to the body, which is next best. Okay? So figure out what rejuvenates you. Figure out what is restful and go do it. Go take a walk. Go breathe in nature. Meditate on how the Lord has wired this little bee buzzing around you that you normally just shoo away. Take time to drink in the Lord's creation. This is different for everybody. Some people get rest from... I don't know, running marathons somehow that's like restful for them. Not me. So I like walks and sitting still and talking to people. Anyway, okay, so find what's restful. Know the season of life you're in. It's going to look different. Okay, again, different seasons of life. Right now, Claudia and I, with Harvey, it was just like rest all the time. That sweet little boy would sit in the corner and play with his toys, and we go to play with him, and he would give us this look like, I'm, I'm good. You don't have to do this. I'm good by myself. I'm like, okay, I guess we can go over here and talk and sip coffee and eat blueberry muffins or whatever. Joe, our little girl, no. Just like, (laughs) that's funny, this cool lifestyle you think you've got. And it's just on the legs, whining all the time. So Claudia and I, as we're just, our eyes are drooping more and more on Fridays. I watch the kids a little bit longer in the morning so Claudia can go read her Bible and read different books that she wants to read because reading is very restful for her. Saturday morning we switch because reading is really restful for me for now. And it's great. For the person doing the reading, which is why, you know, you switch it off. I'm sure when they're older, I don't know, some of you with older kids are like, it's just worse. Uh, That's what I've heard, just nothing but doom and gloom. But I'm sure that season will change, but that's us for now. So know the season of life that you're in and figure out how to wire in rest. And then, again, when you rest, be intentional. Don't just, you know, take a nap. Be intentional. Thank God that he's God that you're not. Thank him for creation, that creation is beautiful. We don't have many trees, but the ones that you do have, thank him for them. You know, they're beautiful. Thank God that we have, you know, hot air balloons, even though he didn't make those, but created man with the capacity, and it's just cool to see those flying over. My kids love it, right? Just joy pumping into our home. Thank God for that. Be intentional about making rest worshipful. Okay, when you take a nap, praise God before you go to sleep, things like that. So rest on the weekends. Number three, rest uh, rest with your lifestyle. This is probably the hardest for us. If your schedule is so busy that literally every week you're just sprinting from one thing to another, you probably need to rethink some things. 
Uh, there was a Scottish couple. That's very American, by the way. Most other places in the world don't understand that sort of lifestyle. There's a uh, Scottish family that went to seminary with Claudia and I, and <laughs> we were talking about that. You know, growing up, you're just, every kid's in a billion sports, and moms are just taking one kid to the next thing and things like that. Uh, and so they said, yeah, when we immigrated here and we went to Massachusetts, we thought, oh, kids being in sports, that'll be fun. And so we took our oldest boy to a football meeting, and the coach, trying to motivate the parents, said, if this isn't your number one priority, don't come. Don't sign up. And Doreen and Stuart were like, cool. I guess we're not playing football. Why would a bunch of 15-year-olds tackling each other dominate our lives? And their kids didn't play football. Now, this is Texas. I know. We're like, whoa. Talk about sinful. <laughs> what a great decision by wise parents. Why would I let this sport... We can throw a ball in the backyard and have just as much fun and not pretend that this is the greatest moment of their lives or whatever. And I'll actually pour into my kids with the time I have to do it now, and I'll raise kids that love the Lord, right? That's a wise decision. We probably need to rethink how much have we actually drunk in from our overworked, crazy, busy society, and how much have we kind of drifted from the biblical idea of rest. So might have to rethink some lifestyle Choices And then number four, building in quick rest into your daily schedule. Uh, we went a couple weeks or months ago now to a church planting, church revitalization mini conference thing. And Matt Chandler, who was preaching, did not say a thing about church planting. And he talked about rest. And this is one of the things I thought was really, really helpful. Uh, he talked about how in between all of his crazy, busy, you know, his unreal schedule, one of the most famous pastors in the world, he builds in five minutes, ten minutes in between meetings just so that he can stop, breathe, reflect on what just happened, reflect on what's happening throughout his day, throw up a quick prayer, and move on to the next thing. And it's just a way continually to remind himself, you're God, I'm not, you've got this, I'm leaving this thing, and I'm not going to go into this next thing stressed about this thing. Okay, if I go home and Claudia just gets stressed out, Jared, about all the stuff happening at Parkway, this thing that's not being written, this whatever that's falling apart or whatever. That's how you get bad husbands and bad absent dads. Even if I'm present physically and my mind is somewhere else, it's not good for my family. I'm not being a faithful father. So literally breathing, stopping before I get in the car to go home or in the driveway when I pull up to say, you've got all that. You're going to tomorrow. I'll pick that back up and walk by your grace right now. Help me be a godly, loving father, love my wife well, and be present here and love my kid. I'll, you see that? Just a tiny little quick prayer resting for five seconds to remember he's God, I'm not. I'm not constantly having the weight of the world on my shoulders, not to mention the constant alerts you're getting on your phone of bombs going off wherever and rebellions happening wherever and the anxieties of the world just pouring in on us. Put in throughout your day times to breathe. When the kids go down for a nap, five minutes before you do whatever, breathe. Take some time, reflect, and rest. Remember that God is God and that he's watching all this and he's in control of all this. So that's rest for your bodies. Quick warning, you will have to fight for this. This will not happen. Your society will stomp this out, much less the enemy who does not want you resting in the fact that God is in control. Yet you have a God who is constantly saying, I carry the weight of the world, not you. I promise rest. Come to me, all who are weary, heaven laden. I will give you rest. Okay? So that's rest for your body, rest for your soul. Again, we see this is one of the first things Jesus are meant to be a people. Rest. We are meant, those who are in Christ, those who follow that Savior, 
are meant to be a people, no matter the craziness of our lives, who live and work out of a place of rest. What was lost in the garden has been mended. The veil has been torn. We do have peace with God. We've been adopted into his family. There's no condemnation. There's adoption. It's not just you don't get hell. It's come into my family. The love that I've poured out on my son for all of eternity, I pour out on you because you've been brought into my family. You're in Christ. You're a son and a daughter of the living God. We are meant to be a people who live in this place of rest. Augustine says this in the Confessions. What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you to seek these things that it cannot find except in you. Oh, Lord, very famous line. Oh, Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is how you and I are meant to live and breathe as the people of the living God. People who find their rest in God. So practically, this is, this is a bit harder to nail these things down. Uh, you will have to do simply everything in your power to just remind yourself of the reality that God has done. God's the one who's done all this. God's the one who said, come to me. By the way, you've been elected from eternity past, so I'm forcing you to come to me against your will. You will try to be your own God without my intervention. So God brings us in so that we can rest. So the first thing is just lay every anxiety that will creep up probably every single day. Go pray and lay that at his feet. Literally pray prayers like, God, I feel stress as if it is an actual weight. I know it's not, but I feel physically weighed down. Take, I don't know how to pull this off. Take this from me. You promise rest forcefully. Get this off of me and make my eyes look at you to where I don't look at myself and let anxieties flood in. Pray those types of prayers. Cry out to him like you see in psalm after psalm after psalm. Please do this. I can't do this. You know that better than anybody. Please intervene, overcome me, and pull this off of me. Lay anxieties at his feet, which a lot of the time is just praying and saying, please take this. Okay? And then to remind yourself of the reality of the gospel, that you have been brought into rest. It's not here. It's available. By your own works, do it. It's that the Son of the living God has come down and paid your penalty. The Spirit of the living God has come down and taken away your heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh, brought you into adoption. You have been already brought into this rest. He is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Remind yourself of this every single day, and anxieties will just start to slip off. Remind yourself every day that I can rest because he reigns. He thing. Remind yourself of the reality of the gospel every day. Charles Spurgeon says this. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes from self to Jesus, but Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he, constant, or he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking to our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to your soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by, quote, looking to Jesus. So practically, remind yourself of that. Practically think through, literally go through in your brain, systematically in the gospel. Your God, you created me for fellowship with you. 
to, to in this perfect good creation, and we lost it because of my rebellion. And yet, because of my rebellion, you, despite of my rebellion, you saved me. I mean, go through the gospel in your mind every day, and you will begin to rest. And you to the day where we will have perfect rest. What you see by faith now, you will one day have by sight. Rest as you dwell with God for all of eternity, and one day we'll be brought into a new creation with no more thorns and thistles coming. Actual rest for your bodies. Okay? So, that's rest. You guys good? Just rest for one second while I get a drink of water. There you go. Okay. So, you're already, you're already starting it well. Okay. Fasting. Seems like the opposite of rest. What is fasting? Very confusing. Uh, Donald Whitney, who wrote uh, an excellent book on spiritual disciplines, says this. Fasting is the most feared and misunderstood of all the spiritual disciplines. I think I would agree with that. So what is fasting? I want to just, again, give you a whole bunch of information about fasting and then some practical things. I've got a bunch of definitions here. Uh, there's not really, I mean, one definition. Everybody takes their best stab at it. Donald Whitney says, Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Richard Foster actually sees a broader, uh, a broader definition of more than just food. Fasting is the voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. John Piper, if you want to get a bit more abstract, he says, Christian fasting at its root is hunger of a homesickness for God. You're like, that's great. That sounds awesome. What does that mean? <laughs> We're going to drill down. What does that mean? Okay, so fasting simply is your voluntary, temporary laying down of something, most of the time food. In the Bible, food is what it is, but we'll talk about how you can fast for more than food for the sake of simply devoting yourself to God, a, a temporary time of devoting yourself to God in a more intense way, okay? So let's look at what fasting is not. Here's what's, where some of the confusion comes in. Fasting, first of all, is not legalism. That's one of the first things. Isn't this legalism? Legalism is you purposefully adding things to God's law that God does not command that are actually good gifts that he's given you that he wants you to partake in and refusing it forever for the sake of your own self-righteousness. That's really important. What are the Pharisees doing? Why are they keeping all these extra laws that they're adding to God's law so that they look great to everybody? Why is Jesus constantly saying, don't be like the Pharisees who display their works before men. The goal is their own self-righteousness, adding extra things to God's law. Fasting is actually really the opposite. It's an overflow of devotion from your heart, laying down good things temporarily, not forever, temporarily for the sake of the best, with a capital B, him, the best, devoting yourself to him. So it's not legalism. And then secondly, it is not manipulating God. You can't manipulate God. So don't don't worry about that. You won't be able to. Uh, you're not trying to make God bend to your own will. Donald Whitney says it's not a spiritual hunger strike where you're like, I'm not going to eat until you do what I want. All right, that's not what's happening here. Uh, there was a uh, yeah, He was 27. Uh, when I was in YWAM that I was kind of put over to disciple, uh, though I was 21. Strange dynamic. Uh, you get a lot of that with YWAM. Fasting for didn't happened, and he was real mad. And so I checked in with him, like, hey, are you okay? You seem frustrated. And he just goes, hey, my fast didn't work. Uh, and so he and I walked through, you know, every biblical passage about fasting, and I was like, hey, fasting isn't, you know, 
making God do whatever you want, okay? In fact, Isaiah 58, there's this passage where Israel, as they're oppressing their people, as they're being wicked, oppressing the poor, all these different things are fasting, and they cry out to God, and they're like, why haven't you heard our fast? And God just kind of mockingly responds, you think this is what I want? You think this is the type of fast that I want? You trying to bend me to your will and give you victory over your enemies while you're oppressing your people, and you're not worshiping me and all these different things? You can't manipulate God. Even if you wanted to. If that was your goal, you can't do it. Okay, So Donald Whitney again says, We can't use fasting as a way to impress God or to earn his acceptance. Rather, we are made acceptable to God through the work of Jesus Christ, not our work. Fasting has no eternal benefit for us until we have come to God, or, uh, until we have come to, God to repentance and faith. So not legalism, not trying to manipulate God. Rather, fasting flows out of your fellowship with God. Rather than legalism, rather than manipulating God, fasting flows out of fellowship with God. Look at Matthew 6, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you fast, okay, not if, when, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. When you fast, Jesus says, don't let anybody else know. Don't go, hey, you just received your reward. Congrats. All right, don't do that. That's what the hypocrites do. That's what the Pharisees do. Rather, when you fast, there's an audience of one. Your father who is in secret. Notice your father, not some far off distant God. Your father who is in secret will reward you. Don't separate fasting from the reality of the gospel. Okay, you've been made a child of the living God. You've been brought into fellowship with him. Your fasting flows out of fellowship. It's like a way of acting out Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or it's a way of acting out that line from be thou my vision, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. It flows out of the fellowship that you've been brought into, that your father who is in secret may see and may reward you. He's the reward you're looking for, not the cheap praise of man. Okay, so that's, that's the heart behind fasting. So what do we see uh, in the scriptures of fasting? I've, I've got a whole bunch of things there in your notes. This is literally just to give you information this is not to say, here's all the different things you must do, okay, especially supernatural fasting. Uh, just because we see something in the Bible doesn't mean we must imitate it, okay? So if you read Elijah, you know, hiding in a cave and birds bringing him food doesn't mean the next time you're hungry, you go find the nearest crow and you're like, where's my sandwich, okay? This is just to help us, you know, see all different types. So you see... Private fasting, like in Matthew 6, you see congregational fasting. You see that in Old and New Testament, a whole congregation fasting. National fasts, think of Jonah when he proclaims judgment upon Nineveh. The king pronounces everyone must fast. That's who's fasting. Types of fasting, you see normal fasting, which is abstaining from food but not water. Partial fasting, people just eliminating a piece of the diet or something like that. You see with Daniel, in Daniel 10, he doesn't eat meat 
for a while, not the Daniel fast earlier. By the way, the whole point of that is that they were fatter than everybody else. So before you buy that book at Mardell, the whole point was that they gained weight, okay? Man, okay, popular books aren't great at theology. Anyway, small rant, done. Partial fasts, absolute fasts, where they fast from food and water. You see that in Ezra. You see that with Esther as uh, Esther commands all the Jews, don't eat food, don't drink any water because we might be killed. We need to pray. see that in Acts 9 as well. And then supernatural fasts, where people go without food or water longer than the body would be able to. Okay, I don't suggest that one, okay, unless you're Elijah or Moses. Uh, so Moses up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water either. See that kind of thing. And then rhythms and fasting. You see regular fasts. Israel is supposed to fast every year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, John Wesley would not uh, let somebody be a minister in the Methodist church unless they fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Fun fact. That's why we're not Methodists. I, I get too hungry. That's not true if you're new. Uh, occasional fasts, you know, fasting every now and then again, uh, Esther, it's just as the occasion arises. We're about to die. Let's fast and ask God to deliver us. We see that kind of thing. Links of fast are everywhere from part of the day to 40 days in the scriptures. Fasting in the New Testament is never explicitly commanded like it is in the Old Testament. But I think you could say it's expected. Again, when you fast or Jesus telling his disciples when the disciples aren't fasting and John the Baptist's disciples and some of the Pharisees' disciples are saying, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, you don't fast when the bridegroom is with you, but one day the bridegroom will be taken away, then they'll fast, right? There's almost this expectation, not an explicit command we could point to, but an expectation of fasting. And fasting, uh, you see, often is combined with other disciplines throughout the scripture. So often you see people praying and fasting, or you see people when they're repenting, They'll fast as well, or when they're meditating, reflecting, searching their own heart, things like that, they'll fast. It's not always by itself. Often, actually, it's combined with things like prayer. Okay, so that's a lot of what you see in the scriptures. I just wanted that to be kind of a quick overview. And then the most common question typically is, can you fast from something other than food? Can we fast from something other than food? In the Bible, you really only ever see food. Twitter wasn't a big thing back then, and so there weren't a whole lot of social media fasts that Moses did. So, it's a joke again. Come on, guys. It's rough. I need some responses. Just fake laugh. Gosh. Half the... There you go. Jeff's not funny, but he thinks I think he's funny because I'm always fake laughing because I'm nice. Okay, there you go. Okay, so in the Bible, you always see food. It's almost always food. But I think you do have room to, to take the principle of what laying down food is in the scriptures and expand that out a little bit. We'll get some, I'll get some clarifiers in just a second. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great 20th century preacher, actually says this as well. This is his view. Fasting, if we conceive uh, of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food or drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate and, and of itself for the sake of special spiritual Purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate by which for special particular reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. So I think you can legitimately apply the principle to other things as a kind of supplement. Uh, there are also people who, can't, who literally cannot fast. Uh, some, Tim could never fast because of uh, diabetes. Okay? So he would never be able to, without <laughs> significantly harming his health, fast, and so you can supplement other things. Again, remember who our God is. Our God is incredibly gracious. Our God is the God who sees you. If you've wrestled with eating disorders, things like that, where this wouldn't be something to just jump into, 
because we think we're supposed to do it, maybe something that requires a bit more thought and patience and taking in counsel and prayer before jumping in to abstaining from food, or maybe something can be graciously used as a supplement. But even outside of those circumstances, I think you can uh, fast from other things as an, as an act of devotion to the Father. Now, here are the clarifiers. Don't do that if it's something that you already wanted to give up because you haven't been disciplined enough. If you're sinfully addicted to Facebook and it's a good thing in general for you to get off Facebook for a time, don't add fasting to that to look more spiritual. Okay, that's Pharisee territory. Okay, just be disciplined and don't be addicted to social media. Then fast from something else. Okay, so don't add it. And, you know, when people ironically are tweeting, social media fast, see you in a month. I want to tweet back, congrats on your reward that you just received, not from your father, but from all your followers, right? Read Matthew 6. It's like the only instruction Jesus gives us about fasting, and it's the most common violated thing. So don't make it an add-on. Don't, if you want to, you know, eat a better diet to be more healthy, don't add fasting to that. Just be more healthy, and then fast a different time, okay? So don't add it on to something else, and remember who you're doing it for, your father who is in Secret, But I do encourage you to fast from other things besides food as kind of a supplement to those things. Okay, practical fasting. Number one, start slow and just grow at this. Don't start off with a weak fast. You will not make it very long and you'll be frustrated and you'll never fast again. Just start with one meal. Give up a lunch and pray or something like that. Just start with a meal and then know your limits. There's no perfect way to do this. We see tons of different examples in the scriptures. Pray, let the Spirit lead you, you have some, some room here, but do this. Start slow and just grow into this. Set yourself up for success. If you're going to do a longer one, wean off coffee so you don't have headaches to battle as well before that or something like that. Start slow, grow, remember your gracious God, that he's the one who we rely on. It's not your own effort. So many people try and fast and then all you're thinking about all day is how hungry you are and you're just focusing on your white knuckles the whole time. Just please don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. And you're not, you're not praying, you're not thinking about God once. Right? Focus on the Lord when you fast. Start slow. Start tiny. Give up, you know, dessert first or something. I don't know. Start slow and grow. Don't start off, you know, fasting a week. Fast for something. I've got a whole bunch of things there. Again, this is an exhaustive list. A lot of these are from Donald Whitney, uh, again, from his book. If you just don't eat, you'll just be hungry and grumpy. Fast for something. We see a whole bunch of different examples in the scriptures. Fasting to strengthen prayer. Again, not as a way to kind of strong arm God, but we see this all over the place. Moses, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, people fasting and praying as a way of just changing really your prayer life, adding devotion elements to your prayer life, which sounds weird and that sounds weird. But if you heard me pray and I was just like, God, help us. We need you. Amen. Okay, what's next? Or you heard me pray, and it was more just literally fervent or had different tone, like, Father, I can't do any of this. This is so out of my hands, but you're in control of absolutely everything. Please intervene. There's nothing we can do apart from you. Please intervene. You see those same content, different, because your tone is revealing your heart. Though You could just boil it down, just different tone. The tone is revealing the heart. Read the Psalms and see how not boring they're begging God to deliver them right then is. And so fasting is kind of a way to do that. It's a way to act that out, if you will. So strengthening your prayers, seeking God's guidance. We see that in Acts all the time. Uh, Doesn't guarantee that God will, you know, bring clarity, but it does 
uh, I guess, uh, point us, make us a bit more receptive to the one who loves to guide us, I heard one pastor say. Seeking for God's, or uh, trying to seek God's clarity on a big uh, issue. Fasting for God's intervention. Abraham Lincoln declared three national fasts during the Civil War. Uh, actually pretty interesting to read. Uh, so if, you, if there's a massive world thing, before you share your fun Facebook post, which we all love to do, why don't you fast and pray first for God to actually change it before you just want to add to the screaming. Not that saying you shouldn't add to the screaming. It's super helpful. But uh, fast and pray first for your leaders before you share, you know, something dumb that they did or something like that. If you want things to be eradicated in the world, beg the only one who can actually do it to do it. Okay? So fasting for God's intervention. Fasting to just see idols in your own heart. Believe me, nothing will reveal them more than fasting. Bread will be like a five-star restaurant when, you have, when you've missed one meal. You're like, oh my gosh, I never realized how much I loved tea or whatever, okay? Reveal idols in your heart, other things. Again, if there's a temptation you're trying to overcome, fasting, begging God to rip it out of you, practicing self-denial. Again, if suffering makes us reveal, or it reveals to us that God is the only true comfort, fasting is a way not to make ourselves suffer, but to practice self-denial. There was a guy in uh, class with my uncle. My uncle went to seminary, and I sat in class with him one time, and there was a guy who was from Texas, and he was a vegetarian, and everyone asked him, why does he hate meat? And he was like, no, I love meat. And he simply said this, I want to have a habit in my life that puts me in the habit of dying to myself. If the call to discipleship is deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, I want to have a habit in my life that puts me in the habit of doing that. Okay, so fasting is a way of practicing self-denial, fasting for things like God's mission. If we want to plant churches all throughout Collin County, if we want more than just four or five churches in all of these cities to open the Bible on a Sunday and preach it, fast, pray, ask that God opens miraculous doors. Ask that 10 years from now we'd be able to point to all these unbelievable things that we could say because we fasted and because we prayed, God did all this crazy stuff. It's not based on our skill or our networking or anything like that. God just did incredible things. Go read the revivals throughout church history, and you will find fasting, praying people before the revivals. Go read the book of Acts, and you will find fasting, praying people before all these big movements of God. So a couple things there, a fast for something. Don't just stop eating. Have, have intentionality behind it. And then thirdly, make it a habit. Okay, again, start small. You can make it a habit. A meal a week or a day a month or a week a year or something like that, a day a week, something like that. Just start small, but make it a habit, not just a one-off thing, but do something to put yourself in the habit of practicing this, okay? So food, absolutely. Do other things besides food. If you're able, do food. Don't just do social media because it's easier or things like that, but make it a habit in your life. Both of these, rest and fasting, will both have to be done by God's grace, not our own efforts. Right, we know that. Completely by his grace. And both of these, again, should flow out of the reality of the gospel. The reality that you've been brought in, you've been made a child, you've been accepted. You're not fasting to be accepted. You've been accepted. You're in Christ. You're not resting to be accepted. You've been brought in to rest already. Both of these are completely by his grace and both of these are completely a result of his grace, a result of the fellowship that we've been brought into. So let me pray, and then we will have some questions, seven minutes for questions. Father, we love you. Again, I, I just I thank you. These are two things that 
<laughs> immediately make us look to our own willpower. Okay, how do I, uh, you know, cancel these things and make sure I rest more on my calendar or whatever? Okay, I guess I'll just won't eat tomorrow. I guess I got to do this because this is an expected thing. Our hearts are just so quick to look to self. Like Spurgeon said, I pray that by your spirit you would just uh, raise our eyes to Jesus, that we would never even look to our own prayers, our own fervency in prayer, whatever, as our own self-righteous, uh, you know, grace, but rather by your grace, Lord, your works. And we would do this, it would be an overflow of joy in our hearts that we would do this not to earn, but rather to reflect and worship from what you have actually done. So we praise you and pray in your son's holy name. Amen.